Good morning, everyone. So good to be back preaching at home. Many of you know I've been filling pulpit at the Road Church in Howell as they search for a new campus pastor, and it's been my privilege to serve there as an extension of Faith Church, helping other brothers and sisters who need to be fed. Go ahead and open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 21. This is October. This is Missions Month, and when Daniel asked me to preach something in the vein of missions, I thought, wow, the Apostle Paul, one of the most famous missionaries, surely I can find something from one of his numerous journeys. And then I found something that had nothing to do with his missions journey. He was just traveling. Praise God. Brother and sister, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? Think about that for a minute. What is the hardest thing you've ever had to do? Now, for many of us, it's saying goodbye to someone we love. A.A. Milne of Winnie the Pooh fame once said, How lucky I am to have something that makes saying goodbye so hard. I wonder if that thought ever crossed the mind of the Apostle Paul on his numerous missionary journeys. That hard goodbyes are a blessing from the Lord. That gospel goodbyes are sweeter than treasure sweeter than gold. In Acts 20, we read how Paul is quickly traveling from city to city to say, city, saying his goodbyes all along the way. It's something our missionaries are all too familiar with, something that some of you in this room are wrestling with. Paul is in a hurry. You can feel the urgency. You read this in Acts 20, and you think... Man, that guy would totally be a good shoe-in for the live-action remake of Alice in Wonderland. I'm late. I'm late. For a very important date, this guy is bouncing. He is rushing, and he's taking big risks to do so. In Acts 20, totally out of character, Paul skips past Ephesus to get where he's going. And in Acts 21, we're not going to cover it entirely, um, but there's a spot where instead of hugging the coast, which was safest for travel by sea to avoid the tempest out in the open waters, he skirts past that and makes a beeline, like a straight line for his intended target, risking life and limb because that was not an easy voyage. And we can't help but think, what is going on in his life? Why the urgency? Why the rush? Why the stress to get somewhere? And in Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, we find out. This is what the Bible says. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Then in verse 25, he adds, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. The Holy Spirit is a terrible, terrible travel advisor. That is not the way you get people to sign up for your journey, the package you've put together. You're not misreading this, brothers and sisters. Affliction and imprisonment and pain and suffering is exactly what Paul is signing up for. He is rushing headlong. He's, he's skipping an entire town full of friends to go rushing into danger. He is side-skirting all of the coastal cities that are much safer to travel along and instead risking life and limb to risk life and limb. 
And the scene ends with a panoramic shot of the great missionary in tears, weeping with his friends, surrounding him before he boards the ship. The story continues, though, so please read with me this instructional travelogue in Acts 21, written by Luke. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While, he, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. On surface level, this may seem like one of the more challenging texts to preach from. There's not a single command in here. And it doesn't appear as if there's much that we can learn from this because really we've got somebody's travel diary. And yet the Holy Spirit has something in store for us if we're only willing to listen. Did you know that one of history's greatest last stands took place at the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C.? 300 Spartan warriors fought off an army led by King Leonidas. They fiercely battled King Xerxes. He led his Persian army with 800,000 warriors. They were battling everyone and conquering everyone, enslaving women and children, destroying the men, ransacking the towns. But, but what made this a little more challenging for the Spartans is that this was during the time of Carnea and the Olympic Games. So not only were they prohibited by their own laws to go off to war during this time, there was an Olympic truce. So it was doubly damnable for them to engage in any sort of military conflict. And yet they knew the enemy was barreling down on their front door. And with that, the leaders of the Spartans decided that the urgency justified sending out a scouting party, sending out just a few guys, just a few, you know, 300 guys, just a few from the city to see what's going on, to maybe, maybe reduce 
some casualties, if at all possible, just to give them a fighting chance. And Leonidas, the leader of their army, he knew in his bones that he would have to risk it all. Because the legend has it, according to historian Herodotus, that the Spartans earlier in the year consulted the oracle at Delphi. And the oracle had prophesied a prophecy that essentially said, y'all are going to die or you're going to lose your king. Pick. You're going to lose your king or do you all want to die? No middle ground. Herodotus tells us that Leonidas, when he was selecting his 300 Spartan warriors in anticipation of the battle that was coming to preserve his people, that he only chose Spartan men who were fathers so that the family line might continue. Feeling compelled in his soul, he knew that he had to do the right thing. It didn't matter what the law said because people's lives are more valuable than the law. And much like the Apostle Paul, this man was unpersuaded from so many things that would have tried to deter him from completing his mission. Unpersuaded from the consequences, unpersuaded from the prophecy that predicted his death, unpersuaded from the inevitable suffering and death, this man led the charge. Unpersuaded to deter, even if it cost him his very life. Paul is in a very similar boat. Because in every city, he's being told through the Holy Spirit that compelled him to go, you're going to suffer. I think Luke wants us to see that Christians must resist being persuaded away from obedience. Christians must remain unpersuaded to stop following God. And we think about what is it that might try to persuade us off the straight and narrow? What might try to pull us away from obeying our great God? What is it that our missionaries have already overcome or are in the process of still ever battling? What is it that you, who've got a call on your life, but you're a little uncomfortable about what that means, what are you fighting that's trying to persuade you away from God? In verses 1, 5, and 6, we can see one of the things Christians will face is the pain of separation. The pain of separation. In verse 1, Luke helps us see this by the words that he carefully chooses to use. Now, we don't quite see it as easily in English, but when Luke says that when we had parted, he's using much stronger language than when we said goodbye, when we, when we separated ways. The Greek word here conveys the idea that they had to tear themselves away from them. Tear themselves away from them. That's an emotional phrase, isn't it? That you had to tear yourself away from your loved ones, from your friends. It's the same word that's actually used of unsheathing a sword. Now, most of us who've ever dressed up for Halloween or maybe done a little bit of cosplay, maybe remember being a child and using a broomstick as a sword, those weigh what? Two pounds? Three pounds? But if you were to have a legitimate kingly sword, something that's actually going to save you, you're thinking 25, 35, 45 pounds. And if it's in your sheath, if it's in your scabbard, where's it going? Absolutely nowhere. It's there. It's in the holster. It's not moving. And yet, what kind of force would it take to rip a 45-pound sword out of its shield, or out of its sheath, rather? A great force. A great force. And Luke is using language that is that very same language. They had to rip themselves away from each other. That is a friendship, my friends. That is a brotherhood. That is a sisterhood. It's one thing to say goodbye to someone when they move across town. 
but imagine someone who's going to go to their own demise, or at least that's what you've been told. When somebody gets the call to go to the mission field, they had to rip themselves away. In verse 6, Paul once again is saying farewell after spending a week with the disciples. You know, whatever the circumstances are of parting, grief is a close companion. Grief is a close companion of goodbye. I know that once I've had some family members move away and occasionally I would get to pick them up at the airport or drop them off at the airport. Airport. Uh, it was about a decade before I stopped crying every time. I eventually got a little bit more used to it, that, that this was a good thing. This is where God had us. I don't know that it was easier. I was just a little bit more in control of my emotions. And yet when Paul is saying goodbye, he's telling them, you're never going to see me again. You're never going to see me. I'm never going to see your face again. You know, we long for togetherness. We were created for community. We were created to worship together, to live together, to serve together. And yet, Satan whispers these lies to us. He tells us that the pain of separation is too much. You shouldn't have to endure saying goodbye just to obey your God. So that call that the Lord has placed on your life, that, that stirring you have in your spirit that says you need to go or that you need to prepare to go, it's okay. Ignore it because that is too much to ask. You should never have to say goodbye. Even the disciples, even his godly Christian friends, even God-fearers and Jesus-lovers were telling him not to go. But did you catch that in verse 4? Through the Spirit. And you asked Pastor Jason, well, what's going on here? You said in Acts 20, the Spirit told him he's got to go, and now you're telling me the Spirit's telling him he can't go. What's going on here? Well, I'm glad you asked. I asked the same question because I didn't understand. And after a lot of prayer, I still didn't understand. But thankfully, we have scholars who have studied things like this. And so again, my brains are brought. I like how one commentary put it. They said this phrase, through the Spirit, is difficult to interpret. Don't we all feel so much better now? Don't we all feel so much better that the people whose job it is to spend all of their livelihood exploring the original languages and understanding scholarly, academic, theological ideas are admitting this one's tricky. That makes us all feel so much better, I hope. They say it's hard to interpret, but there is no indication that the Spirit is speaking audibly through the people or giving a command. It is far more likely that the Spirit has given them insight into what Paul will experience in Jerusalem. Did the Spirit compel the Apostle Paul, to go to Jerusalem. Yes, 100% biblical truth. Did the Spirit tell the people, go tell Paul not to go? No. They revealed to him and those other folks, here's what your brother is going to face when he gets there. And then their human reaction, their loving Christian reaction said, hey man, I don't want you to go through that. Imagine if this morning we announced that there were two families who felt called by the Lord to go serve in Israel as missionaries. Some of you, depending on how close you are with those families, would immediately start breaking. You'd start crying because you know what would await them. You can't possibly imagine a life where they're going to volunteer their freedom and their head for the name of Jesus. 
Saying goodbye would be too much. You would, you would plead with them to stay. I think about when you first leave home without the newborn baby. Whether you have to go back to work or you finally get a date night and grandma and grandpa are going to watch the baby and you've got to rip yourself away from the newborn because it's just too much to say goodbye because you're just so enthralled with this baby. If I remember correctly, the first time I had to go back to work after the birth of our first, I know I was an emotional mess. That's probably not hard for you to imagine. But I remember saying something like this to Selena. You know, I could just not go, right? Yeah, I'm going to get fired, but, you know, we'll get on food stamps. We'll get some of that government cheese. Like, it'll be okay. I can just stay, right? I don't want to leave. And then we had another and then another. And I think every single time after my days were up and I had to go back, and I'm thinking, you know what? I mean, it's only the reputation of Christ if I'm a dirtbag. Like, I don't have to go. I can just stay with my baby. I can stay with my family. I don't want to go. It's such an emotional response that we have, trying to leave those that we love. Of course, that's not the godly thing to do, so we muster up the strength and courage, and we cry our eyes out on the way to work or on the way to the restaurant, and we check in every 30 minutes just to make sure everything's going okay. And then like Paul, we, we tear ourselves away from those we love. So brother and sister, what is God calling you to this morning? Are you being called to the mission field? Way over there? Or right here in our own backyard? I've had to say goodbye to some really dear friends who only went a state or two over, even in the same time zone. And it's still scary. There's still big risk involved. And saying goodbye was not any easier than if they had gone to Cameroon. Is God calling you to a greater purpose? Is God calling you to a greater sense of holiness? Are you being called by God to give up something? Is God calling you to end a relationship because it's ungodly, because your spouse or your significant other is not a Christian? Is God calling you to give up a job because it's immoral? I don't know specifically what God is calling you to, but I know he's calling all of us to a greater sense of holiness. And yet we, we often reject his call because saying goodbye to things we like and people we love is just too much to bear. But let me remind you of what Jesus said. He said, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Paul had every human reason not to go, to not continue his journey. He was surrounded by people that loved him and knew him and counted him as a dear friend. And saying goodbye was crushing him. It was a painfully emotional experience. But his love of Christ and his sense of duty and obedience far surpassed the pain of separation Luke wants us to see that Christians, not just those called to be missionaries, should desire to climb aboard the next ship. We've got to take that next step in obedience. We should remain unpersuaded by the cares of the world, by the pain of separation. But Luke also wants us to see uh, that Christians ought to be unpersuaded by the fear of suffering. In verse 10, Agabus the prophet appears. If you're familiar with Acts, you would have remembered the name from Acts 11. Luke records that Agabus prophesied a worldwide famine. That's kind of hard to fake. And it came to pass. 
So we know that they know this guy's legit. This isn't some TV preacher. This isn't some name it and claim it kind of guy, someone telling him to live his best life. Now, this is someone who has been used by the Lord and has some authority with him by the Spirit of God. He rolls up on the scene and he's prophesying suffering for Paul. Keeping in line with famed prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Agabus employs a time-tested way of communicating truth. It's one of my favorite tricks doing kids' ministry, good old-fashioned object lesson. In fact, I must confess that I was this close to inviting Pastor Mike to come up here so I could take his belt off of him and tie him up the way Agabus did Paul, but you can also see that my fear of suffering prevented me from following that course of action. But I thought about it. Mike, you're welcome. You're welcome. But Agabus rolls up, and instead of just saying something that could potentially go in one ear and out the other, he's making this very graphic, concrete. And so he takes Paul's belt, and he binds his hands and his feet, and he says, Spirit of God says, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt. Imprisonment, lack of freedom. I don't think they got three squares a day. I don't think they got exercise time. I don't think they got HBO. I think they got a bunch of nastiness and suffering confined in a small space. His prophecy accords with what the Spirit had already shown Paul in chapter 20, verse 23. Arrest and prison are what await you. And the prophet binds his own hands and his feet, and he declares, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen to you. This isn't just somebody saying, you know, there's a little bit of civil unrest over there. Or, you know, they're not too friendly of people who talk about Jesus. This is somebody saying, through the Holy Spirit, you're going to jail. You're going to forfeit your freedom. You will be property. Now, Luke doesn't mention it, but I imagine the lump in his throat and the pit in his stomach growing 10 times when he hears this. You think about if you were Paul as well. When that fear starts to sink its claws in you, it starts to climb up your spine, and the fear just really sets in, and you feel the weight of it all, and it becomes a little more real. Chains of suffering, chains of imprisonment will be my future. I will endure suffering. And yet Paul was all the more happy to continue his course of action. He was interested in obedience for the name of the Lord Jesus. All for the name of Jesus. You know, names carry a lot of power. One of my favorite antidotes from the ancient world is the story of Alexander the Great. His armies rolled across the land and he conquered it, the entire ancient world. And on one occasion, there was a battle and a young soldier became paralyzed with fear and he fled the battle scene. One of the most cowardly things someone could do is flee the battle scene. And yet that's what he did. He tucked his tail in between his legs and he retreated. Now when the battle was over, he was arrested and brought before Alexander the Great. And you can imagine this very powerful, prominent man. You can imagine the terror and fear that he would strike in all of his men. You can imagine the young man's embarrassment. How much fear he was racked with knowing, oh my goodness, I've, I've not only retreated, I've been caught. And now I've got to fess up. Alexander says to the young man, 
Sir, what is your name? And the boy replied, My name is Alexander. And the king burst out of his chair and he grabbed the guy by his coattails and he says, You better change your name or you better change your conduct. And he tosses him to the ground. You better change your name or you better change your conduct. Alexander the Great would not have anyone who shared his name bring disrepute to his name. Not as one as his men and not someone else who might have the same name. We dare to call ourselves Christians. We bear the name of our Savior. And for some of us, we better change our conduct. We better change our name. We can't run from God. How dare we retreat from what he's calling us to? Is it hard? Absolutely. Is it fun? Not always. Will we suffer? Absolutely. Will it be easy or convenient? Mm -mm, not at all. You're not promised that. But what are you promised? That at the end, it will have been worth it for the name of Jesus. And that at the end, your heavenly father would say, well, good, my good and faithful servant. The Lord God Almighty has grafted us into his family. We are joint heirs with Christ the King. We cannot allow fear of captivity or fear of breaking up with someone we love or the fear that we're going to tick some people off and we're probably not going to be invited to that dinner party next year just because we refuse to obey and open our mouth and share the gospel or move our feet and go to where the lost are. We have been bought with a price. You know that, right? We're not our own. All throughout the New Testament, the word used to describe us as Christians is doulos. You can butter it up all you want. You can call it servant if you want, but we know what it is. Slave. We are the Lord's property, and he is the best master. We are his property. He has purchased us. He can do with us as he wants, and he wants us to serve him for his glory and for our own good. And when suffering comes or the fear of suffering starts to cloud our mind, when Satan whispers those honeyed words about how much comfort he will give us, if only we would get off of the course that God has called us to, what are we going to say? We want to say, get behind me, Satan. We want to remain unpersuaded, but how do we do that? When the fear of suffering clouds our minds and we can't find any light, how do we actually stay true? I suggest that we remind ourselves of the truth of Scripture and the power of God to sustain us. If you're taking notes, take, take down this. Isaiah wrote in chapter 41, verse 10, Isaiah 41, 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Do you see who's doing all of the heavy lifting here? Do you see who's doing all of the hard work? It's not you. It's not me. It is God. He said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. You don't have to do this. I've got you. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, but Jason, what about... Yep. Yeah, but pastor, what about this? Yep. Yeah, but you don't know my backstory because I got this thing. Yes, that too. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Does that mean we will avoid suffering? God forbid. We should desire to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's one of the ways we know we're authentic Christians. But it does mean that even though we don't avoid suffering, that God is with us in the suffering. God equips us for the suffering and that God will sustain us through the suffering. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we must resist being persuaded by the pain of separation, the fear of suffering. And if we continue to look in verses 12 and 13, the tears of saints, the tears of saints. After hearing the prophecy of Agabus, Luke confesses that he joined the others in trying to persuade Paul not to obey God. I imagine if the Holy Spirit weren't governing the writing process, he would have liked to omit that piece. I know I would. And yet, the Holy Spirit doesn't let him off the hook. He said, all right, Luke, you're going to document this. You're going to let the whole world know that you wanted Paul to disobey me. And Luke says, okay, we'll throw it in. We'll keep it there. Luke says, we. We wanted to persuade him away. Did you know that humans are the only creatures capable of producing emotional tears? Did you know that? Only humans are capable of producing emotional tears. And it's been my experience that tears can tell so much more than word or pen. They really express all of our inexpressible feelings and emotions, our thoughts, our fears, our joys, our hopes, our dreams. Tears are powerful and they are convincing. Paul's friends, dearly beloved friends, saints in the Lord, are understandably alarmed when considering what Paul must face. I imagine some of us would feel the same. Again, if we had announced to you this morning that two families, and we brought them up and we said, this family here has been called by the Lord to go serve in Israel, and this family over here has been called to go serve undercover in North Korea. And when you saw them, because of your relationships for them, even if you've just met them in the past year, because we're knit together in the Lord, how is your heart not going to break? You know what they're signing up for. You know what you would think. And their reaction to Paul's continuation of going forward is very similar to what we would experience, I imagine. Some of the things I imagine we would say are the very same things I expect those folks to say. Don't go. Please don't go. We need you here. Like, who's going who's gonna to play the piano? Who's going to serve in the nursery? Who's going to help us fix the roof? Brothers and sisters, I need you. Don't go. Now imagine that hits a little closer to home. What if it's your kid, right? What if it's your kid who says, Mom and Dad, I, I need to go. And you think, how, how dare you, God? Why would you take my babies from me? Or what if it's your grown kid who's got a life and family of their own, and you think, you can't take my grandbabies. Don't go, please. I'll give you anything. 
go. If it were my kids called, I can imagine how hard my flesh would want to war against God's call in their life. Please don't go. God, take me instead. I will give you everything. Just let me take their place. Don't take them. Don't take them away from indoor plumbing and Wi-Fi and Starbucks. Don't take them away from the fact that we can meet here. And I don't think anyone here is fearful that we're going to be attacked today. And yet we know there are brothers and sisters who regularly fear martyrdom because to name the name of Christ is to pronounce a death sentence upon yourself. Paul asked them, he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Now, he knows that it's not that they don't understand God is the one that has called him. That's not it. But it's that their human emotion says, oh man, come on, please. Stay here, don't go. Avoid the pain, avoid the suffering. And you can feel this pounding on his heart. Come on, guys, you're making this hard enough as it is. Like, it's already hard enough to say yes to God when I know my life and my freedom is on the line. And now, as I'm literally ripping myself away from you guys, you're making it harder by crying. Imagine the parent who does have to return to work after an extended time at home, and, and the kid's trying to hide the dad's shoes or hide mom's purse so you can't go. Daddy, please stay. Mommy, don't go to work. You've all heard the old preacher's tale about the parent who has a conversation with the child because one parent works an ungodly amount of hours. And they say, how much money does mom or daddy make each day? And the kid brings his piggy bank and opens it up and says, do I have enough for mom or dad to stay home today? Don't go. Can I just get you to stay because I love you? And Paul's experiencing this. And he's like, what are you guys doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart. This is hard enough. And I love you guys, but man, <laughs> let's make this easier for me. Come on, you guys know what I have to go through. Paul is a man on a mission dedicated to the glory of the Lord, and he is ready not only for prison, but for death itself. Just like Jesus was on his trip into Jerusalem, a man on a mission who was unpersuaded from the cares of the world, who fought through the emotion of saying goodbye to people he loved, all for the glory of God and obeying the Spirit's call on his life. When finally his friends realized this guy is not changing his tune, they finally got their act straight and they said in verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. In 1945, the first ever conscientious objector was awarded the Medal of Honor. The recipient, Private First Class Desmond Doss, a U.S. Army medic and devout Seventh-day Adventist who strictly held to his beliefs of not killing or working on the Sabbath. This is a man who saved 75 soldiers during one of the bloodiest battles of World War II in the Pacific, and he did it without ever carrying a weapon. The battle at Hacksaw Ridge on the island of Okinawa was a close combat fight with heavy weaponry. And this guy carried not a single weapon. Thousands of American and Japanese soldiers were killed, and the fact that Doss survived the battle and so many lives were saved continues to boggle people's mind. And in, and in one scene of the movie made about this particular battle, we get a scene of Desmond's father, a World War I veteran at a cemetery. And he asks his son to, to meet him there. And when the son arrives, the dad kind of launches into a bit of a tirade about how against 
his son being in the military and especially being one who is not going to carry a weapon, he, is, he just cannot accept that truth. And he's looking at the tombstones of the men, the friends he had who he's buried. And he says, I don't want to put you on the ground too. I don't want to lose my sons just like I lost my friends. And you can imagine, especially at that time, right in the 1940s, disappointing dad was almost unthinkable. The amount of weight, that, that, that pain of suffering, that pain of saying goodbye to someone was just unbearable. And yet Desmond was undeterred. He was unpersuaded to go away from what he knew he had to do. Desmond freely admits that he knows it's going to be hard to be a pacifist and be in a war, but he wants to do good. He says, God has not called me to take life. And his father says, it's not going to be hard. It's going to be impossible. And still he went, unpersuaded by tears and heartache, unpersuaded. He did not abort the mission. He continued forward. Now, when it's not you that's called, and like I've alluded to earlier, when it's your kid that's called, are we going to be supportive? Because when you think about global missions, we often think about, well, am I called or am I not called? And a lot of us say, who, by the grace of God, praise his name, I'm not called, because I can't handle that. But there are going to be people in this room today, possibly our children or our nephews or our grandkids, who may get called, whether to go to some inner city or to some foreign country that is hostile and dangerous? Are we going to play the fool like Dad did here? Are we going to play the fool like Luke and his companions and say, don't go, you can't, and try to convince someone to ignore the call of God? Or are we going to be senders for the grace of God, or by the grace of God, for the glory of God? Many in the army despised Desmond Doss at first sight. He had this religious reputation that preceded him everywhere he went. They knew this was a guy who was going to ruin everything. This is the guy who we can't count on. He can never save us. So they court-martial him because he's refusing to obey his commands to carry weapons and take life. And he's in this courtroom scene, and just before the judge slams the gavel down to court-martial him, to dishonorably discharge him, his dad bursts into the room. Now, his dad has a little bit of leeway and a little bit of clout here. He comes in, being a former veteran of World War I, and he comes in with a letter saying, you need to read this. His commanding officer, who is now a brigadier general, is vouching for the son, Desmond. And the, the brigadier general says in his letter that Desmond is protected according to the U.S. Constitution. You cannot court-martial him. Desmond's father, who was once against his son, violently almost angry and disappointed in his son for risking it all, and for the sake of what? For the name of what? For the glory of what? Now the dad has turned the tune, right? He's changed his tune. Now he's supporting his son, fighting for his son, advocating for his son, risking a lot to protect his son. The charges against Doss are dropped, and the judge declares, Private Doss, you are free to run into the hellfire of battle without a single weapon to protect you. Without a single weapon to protect you. And when Paul confirmed his dedication, he is not going to be persuaded to deter from the course. He is not going to step off the path that God has called him to. Luke changes his tune as well. And they agree, let the will of the Lord be done. We must know that God may call others to certain ministries or geographic locations, and it cannot be our knee-jerk reaction to say, no, 
I don't think that's a good fit. I don't think you should go. I think you're better served here or we were better served for you here. Our knee-jerk reaction to be, needs to be, let the will of the Lord be done. We need to be prepared to yield to the Spirit. We need to take our hands off the wheel, if you will, and allow those we love, even those we hold most dear, to enter the danger zone if that's what God has called them to. We must be ready to obey and to support those who are obeying the work of the Lord, even with tear-soaked eyes. And as difficult as it is for anyone to disappoint a parent, or as, it dis- as difficult as it is for any grandparent or parent to relinquish their parental and grandparent rights, because we all think we have those, as difficult as it is for us to remove ourselves and say, let the will of the Lord be done, we have to know that this is what God has called us to. We must say to all who would try to persuade us otherwise, let the will of the Lord be done. This is something every single one of our missionaries has had to do and continues to do. Every missionary, and we've met a couple of them over the past year. We've met several over the past couple of years. And by the grace of God, we're going to meet more, and we're going to send more. And from this church, we will send more. And we're going to have to have some gospel goodbyes. We're going to have to say, I miss you and I love you and I'm praying for you. And we're going to have to be okay with virtually communicating. But we have to know that risking it all, suffering for the cause of the kingdom is not new. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. And if I've suffered, you will suffer also. The eternal son of God was obedient. He had a call in his life and he made that same trip to Jerusalem. He was obedient to the death on the cross. He wasn't spared suffering, so why in the world should we think that we will be spared? And even if we're not called to the mission field, we are called to share the gospel. You realize that, right? That happens in our home, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in line, waiting for coffee or to pay the cashier. Micro-conversations with your barista or your server or, or the airline person. We are called to share the gospel, Jesus shed his blood so that we would be invited into the kingdom. And he saved us for work. We have work to do, brothers and sisters. Lee says often in our meetings and in our family meetings here and in our deacon and elders meetings that we either need to be goers or we need to be senders. And I I am thankful that we are senders. And I am confident that some of us in this room are called to be goers. Did you know that the very same spirit that filled Jesus Christ, the very same spirit that breathed breath into the nostrils of a clay man is the very same spirit that resides in each and every one of us as Christians? Did you know that he is with us? Did you know that 10 out of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith in Jesus as the Holy One of God, resurrected, and the only way that sinners can be forgiven by their sins, by the grace of God, they pursued obedience. Did you know that the spirit that filled the Savior and the disciples is that very same spirit that we have inside of us? So when you're faced with a choice, brother and sister, should I listen to God knowing that it's going to cost me something? It's going to cost me friendships or close proximity to loved ones or a fat portfolio economic growth, 
a well-stocked cabinet. It will cost me a nice 401k. It will cost me a lavish dinner party. It will cost me being there for my grandkids' first step. It will cost me being there for my young son and daughter as they enter adulthood because of the call in their life. Are we willing to yield? Or on the other hand, are we going to be like Luke before he got his act together and try to persuade those who are called to stay? Are we going to fight through the pain of suffering or the fear of separation or the tears of saints? No. We are going to boldly proclaim that God will help us through that because we can't do this on our own. We cannot do this in our own strength. His grace is sufficient for us, sufficient to stand tall, sufficient to move forward, and most of all, sufficient to remain unpersuaded. Let's pray. Our Father God, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for all of the missionaries that you have ever called to the dark corners of this earth. Thank you, Lord, for the testimony that they have and for the glory you receive by doing the unthinkable where people in underground churches or people in hostile lands who are operating in such dire conditions who've sacrificed comfort and family and creaturely comforts. Lord, they've sacrificed so much so that they might have an opportunity to share the good news that Jesus Christ has made a way for sinners. Father, we are so thankful because if it weren't for missionaries, none of us in this room would be saved. The gospel somehow got all the way over here, even though the gospel started on the other side of the globe because of the work of missionaries. And Father, I pray that for those in this room who you have called to the mission field or called to repent from some heinous sin or those you have called to a higher standard of holiness or a greater degree of faithfulness, that we would have the strength by the grace of God, by the spirit and power of God, that you would help us to obey. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.